Hello again. We are so happy that you're with us. There was a lady several years back, a psychologist named Ruth Berenda, and she conducted an experiment where she would take 10 teenagers at a time into a room, and there she would show them pictures of different straight lines that were different lengths. And she instructed them as she pointed to the lines to raise their hand when they saw the longest line, when she pointed to the longest line. What one of the 10 didn't know is nine of them had been instructed to raise their hand when she showed them the second longest line, not the longest, but the second longest line. She wanted to see the influence they would have over that 10th person. And so they showed picture after picture and she would go through and point at the lines. And every time she pointed to the second longest line, all nine of those that had been instructed ahead of time would raise their hands right away, saying that that was the longest line. And they repeated that over and over again with different pictures and then with different groups of 10 that had been instructed to do the same thing. Here's the interesting part of the study. 75% of the time, the 10th person would see everybody else raise their hand and would raise their hand too. In other words, they weren't willing to stand up against what everybody else was raising their hand for. They weren't willing to be distinctive. And the truth is, it's difficult to stand out and be distinctive. It's much easier just to go along with the others. We can learn a lot from the character we're looking at today in the Old Testament, who, who was willing, along with some of his friends, to take a stand and be distinctively different from the others under very difficult circumstances. I'm talking about Daniel, and this is recorded for us in the book of Daniel, beginning with chapter 1 and verse 1. And the first thing I want us to see is this wasn't easy for Daniel. There were forces working against Daniel. And I want to talk about some of those forces working against him. The first force working against Daniel was fear. Let's pick up in chapter 1 and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from, from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Daniel grew up and witnessed one of the worst times for his people. They had turned away from God. They weren't living as they should and representing God the way they should. Their king wasn't a righteous king standing up for God. And God allowed them to be overthrown by a pagan king. And we have records of how the Babylonians treated the people that they went in and conquered. Daniel witnessed most likely terrible slaughter of many of his people. He saw their, their property and their goods being taken and destroyed or stolen from them. He saw them being beaten and executed. He saw women being raped. He witnessed terrible atrocities as a young man. And so he knew that the people that were taking him now captive, he was under their control and they were wicked and they were evil. And there had to be an element of fear. What if I get on their bad side? What if they decide uh, that they're not pleased with me? Then I could be treated terribly like they had treated so many others. So fear was an element that could have kept him from being distinctive and set apart. Another thing was what I call opportunity. Look at verses three and four. 
Then the king ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So here's an opportunity. Daniel is picked, and it is somewhat of a compliment that they picked Daniel to be in this group. Remember the qualifications that we're looking for without physical defect and handsome from the royal family and nobility, showing aptitude for all kinds of learning. So he's intelligent, he's well-informed, he's quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. It was a compliment that they thought of him that way, that they looked at him that way. And here he has an opportunity if he plays along with them and what they want from him, and he's willing to compromise who he really is and what he really believes, it could be to his advantage in a great way. It's hard to be distinctive and different when not doing so could actually benefit you in the immediate time of your life and the present circumstances that you're in. And Daniel had that temptation with that opportunity in front of him to not take a stand and be different. He also had something else working against him, and that was his peers at the time. It wasn't just Daniel that was picked for this. There was a whole group of young men that were picked that they thought met these qualifications. Look at verse 5. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So they went into a three-year apprenticeship program, you might call it, where they were being trained and taught and they had certain food they were supposed to eat uh, and, and follow all the rules that they were given so that they would be suitable to work in the palace for the king. And Daniel saw that many of his peers were going right along with the plan. In fact, later on in verse 13, as this story developed uh, and he had challenged them to, to consider doing a test, he said to them, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Daniel knew many of his friends were going to go along with the plan. It's harder to stand out and be distinctive when everybody else is doing something different. Isn't that what we often say and often hear? Well, everybody is doing it, right? In this group, most everybody was following the plan that the king had for them. So that was working against Daniel. He had this opportunity to help himself. He had his friends that were willing to go along with what the king was asking them to do. And he was under the rule of wicked people. And there was another element that I believe worked against Daniel. And we don't often think about this one, but it's common to every human being on the planet. Daniel and every other hero in the Bible had this obstacle just like we have. It was his sinful nature. You see, we are all born into the flesh. And ever since the time of Adam and Eve, when the curse of sin came upon all of creation, every human being, man or woman, no matter where you're born or where you're from, all of us are born into a flesh that is naturally inclined towards sin. We forget about that when we try to fix the world's problems. We're just having uh, better politicians or better laws or better social programs. We think we can fix the world's ills. But here's what those things don't take into account. The sinful nature of man. And only the power of God can overcome that. 
And so we, when we leave out that element and try to make change, we often get frustrated time and time again with all the hopes that things are going to get better and they don't. And why don't they? Because left to ourselves, no matter what the programs are or who the leaders are, we are all naturally inclined towards sin. And without anything working to help overcome that, any power greater than that, we will naturally drift toward sin. Paul said it this way. I love his humility and his honesty. In Romans 7 and verse 18, here's what he said. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. And some translations say in my flesh, right? For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Paul's not saying it was impossible with God's help to make a change. He's saying, on my own, in my sinful nature, in the flesh, it's impossible for me to rid myself of the evil that's in me and replace it with the good that I know I should be doing. Until we come to grips with that, that is an obstacle that will keep all of us from being transformed into the people that God wants us to be. So those are the things working against Daniel. Well, what, what were the advantages? What were the qualities that were working for Daniel? I think there's several here I want to point out. One quality that stands out to me was his decisiveness. Uh, listen to verse 8. It says, but Daniel, after they were told to eat this food and drink this wine that they would be brought, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel was raised under God's laws of of what to eat and what not to eat and how the food was supposed to be prepared. God had given these guidelines to his people so that they would be a set apart and distinctive people. And Daniel believed that God had his best interest at heart with those directives that he gave them in this area of their lives. And it says he resolved not to defile himself. That word translated resolved in the Hebrew means he made a decision in advance of what he was going to do and how he was going to react when that opportunity presented itself. Resolve is critical if we're going to be distinctive. If we have in our hearts a desire to disciple the generations coming behind us, to stand up and be distinctive for God and, and to really impact the world the way God wants them to, we need to build into them that resolve to be willing to stand out and be distinctive. And how does that begin? They need to see it in us. They need to see us deciding in advance. Here's what I know about our sinful nature in the flesh. I know it from observation of other people. I know it as a pastor dealing with people who have sinned and, and come for help. And I know it in my own personal life and my battle with those things that God would not want in my life. Here's what I know. If I wait until I'm in the pressure of the moment to decide what I'm going to do, the flesh is so strong, I will often give in to it. But if I resolve in advance, I decide, here's who I am in God. Here's who I am in Christ. Here's who, what God expects of me. I resolve to be that man before I face those critical moments of decision. If I've already decided that's who I'm going to be, then more often than not, I can make a better decision under pressure. And more often than not, I can do the right thing instead of the wrong thing. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about a pattern of consistency here where we can more often have victory 
over the sinful inclinations of the flesh that we live in. All of us need to have this decisiveness, and Daniel had that quality in him. Another quality he had that I see much lacking today is respect for others. Daniel resolved between him and God who he was going to be, but this was not just between him and God. He had to deal with the real-life people that were now over him in authority and had power over him. How was he going to treat them? How was he going to respond to them? What example would he set before them? It says in verse 8, remember, he, he resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal food and wine. But then he did this. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. You know what he didn't do? He didn't go in there ranting and raving and demanding his rights. That's our natural inclination in the flesh. That's our natural response to what we think is being asked of us that, that shouldn't be asked of us, demanded of us, that shouldn't be demanded of us. I'm not saying there's never a time for that. I'm saying that should not be our first response, our first inclination. That's a fleshly response. That's a response of the sinful nature. Daniel was respectful to the chief official. And he went to him and asked for permission not to defile himself that way. Don't you think that's better received by this official than if Daniel had gone in there just demanding that he not have to be made to do that? It's tough, isn't it? When we feel like we're not being treated right or we're being asked to do things that, that we shouldn't be asked to do, to still be respectful of the people that are doing that with us. I know with the virus and with things going on in our country with injustice and racism and all that, the natural inclination is to let our anger or our flesh take control over us and respond out of the flesh. But as God's chosen set apart people, is there a better way for us to respond? I think there is. And I think showing respect to people, all people, is a better response that goes God-honoring and how we do it. He also had another advantage, I think, a characteristic in his life that I believe is a quality we need to seek to, and that is that he had great confidence. Only it's not confidence the way we often think of it. We think of confidence usually as self-confidence. My wife and I coined a term for ourselves a long time ago, many years ago, and we didn't make it up. It was around before that, but we adopted it and started using it. It's the word, it's the phrase, God confidence. Daniel had confidence in who he was in his relationship with God. And he had confidence in God's care and God's presence and God's provision for him, even in those terrible circumstances that he found himself in. Pick up with verse 9. It says, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. <laughs> He's worried about himself. What if he allows Daniel not to eat that food, but it doesn't work well for Daniel and his friends and they end up not being healthy and not being able to complete the program and be helpful to the king. Then the king would hold this official responsible for that. And he might be executed for not doing what the king said. It says in verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. So again, he's being respectful. 
He's saying please, but he's offering this other alternative. Test us for 10 days, he said. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young man who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. So he respectfully asked for permission to try something different. And God came to Daniel's aid in this circumstance. And Daniel trusted God enough and believed in God enough and had enough confidence in God's care and provision that he was willing to put this to the test that God's way would be proven out to be the better way. It's hard to stand up and be distinctive, even in sometimes little things like being pressured on what to eat or not to eat or what to drink or not to drink or what drugs to take or not to take. All of those things we can be pressured, language to use or not use, all of those things we can be pressured. But if we have confidence in God and God's teaching and God's plan for our lives, then we can we can have this God confidence to stand up and be distinctively different. He had another, I believe, wonderful, wonderful opportunity to to experience something really powerful here. Another quality that he was able to experience was God's blessing in his life. I think it started earlier, but we really find out about how it's manifested here in verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. In other words, doing it the way God said to do it was proving to be the better way. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and learning of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Here's what I know about God. When we honor him in obedience, he honors that obedience. He blesses that obedience. And that's what he's doing for Daniel and his friends. At the end of the time sent by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them, listen to this, 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Here's what I've discovered about being willing to trust God and have confidence in God. Enough confidence to be distinctively different. Here's the result. There's nothing more persuasive in any culture than a real life demonstration of the benefits of God's teaching and God's blessing and God's power. Sometimes others will take a stand to do the right thing too, if just one person will lead the way. In our culture with all the, the things we're trying to deal with right now, the challenges that we face, I believe God is looking to the church. He's looking for men and women who claim to be identified with Christ, who claim to be followers of Christ, to be willing to stand up and be distinctively different in such a powerful way, following God's teachings, that we will have a fantastic impact on our culture. And here's the thing. If a few of us will do that, it will pour courage into others to come along and do that too. No matter what cycles of, 
of evil have been in our past or in our family or in our culture. It just takes a few men and women who are willing to stand up and be distinctively different to start a change, a wave of change that transforms a culture. And God's calling on us to do that. And that's why I want to close with the third thing today, and that is the distinctiveness for Christ followers that God wants for us. I believe there are three areas of distinctiveness that God wants for his people in any culture and every culture in any time and at all times. These three uh, apply to all of those cases, okay, whatever it is. I want to start with 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. It sets the stage for it. This is written by the Apostle Peter. You remember Peter, right, in the New Testament. Peter, who, who preached the first gospel sermon, he goes on to say this in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you, speaking to Christians, Christ followers, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this sets the stage for us. He is calling us to stand out and be distinctive among our culture. There's lots of bad things in the culture. Right now, uh, what's being magnified is racism and injustice and, and, and challenging with the government with the response to the virus and all of those things that are happening. And here's the thing. He's calling us in that environment, in that culture, to be distinctively different because of our identification with Christ. So here are three areas of distinctiveness I believe he's looking for. The first one is moral values. Uh, sadly, uh, in most surveys that have been done recently, among those who identify with Christ, they claim to be Christians, the moral values they're living by aren't very different than the culture around us. Yet in Ephesians 5 and verse 3, he tells us this, but among you, Christ followers, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, he says, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This is serious business with God. He's called us to be morally, distinctively different than the culture around us. Oh, but everybody's having sex before marriage. Everybody's uh, 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 getting drunk. Everybody's, you know, all of our friends are doing this. We use all of these excuses. You know, we, we grew up with racism. We grew up with, with all these things going on. We, uh, what do you expect, right? What God expects is that in Christ, we be distinctly different than the culture. He's not saying it's easy. He's saying it's possible by the power of God and the presence of Christ. And too many Christian adults are afraid to draw the line on moral issues. And it's time we step up to the distinctiveness God has called us to. Because then and only then can we represent Christ well in our culture. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, he said this, Don't let anyone, and this is especially what we need to teach those generations coming behind us, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. 
Instead, instead of allowing that to happen, set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. He doesn't say only if your parents taught you to do that, only if your teachers are doing that, only if your leaders are doing that. He says you be an example to them, even as a young person, of these values that God wants you to have. So there is this call from God that we be distinctive in our moral values. And connected to that, he already mentioned it in that verse, is we need to be distinctive in our speech, in the words that we say, and how we say them. In Ephesians 4.29, he says, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Did you hear those qualifiers there? No unwholesome talk, but only what is helpful. Helpful for what? for building other people up according to their needs, that it may do what? Benefit those who listen, that it helps them be better, do better, uh, learn what they need to learn, understand what they need to understand to improve their lives. Our young people today are growing up in a culture where the speech around them can oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes in entertainment and in music, some of those avenues where young people are greatly influenced, Sometimes the speech is filthy. It's ridiculous how bad it's gotten and how widely accepted it is. There is actually an organization that has done studies year after year of who uses the most profanity in film. And for several years running, one actor led the way, Samuel L. Jackson led the way. And they, uh, they have documented, they say, 301 times that Samuel L. Jackson has used uh, just gross profanity in movies. And oftentimes the words used most often are the MF, right? He, that's a, a phrase he uses over and over again. But Samuel L. Jackson got pushed out of the number one spot over the past year, according to this group. Leonardo DiCaprio you know, Samuel Jackson had 301. They said Leonardo DiCaprio now has 361 expressions of profanity in his films. But he didn't even come in first. One above him is Jonah Hill, who they say now has 376 expressions of profanity in his films. What a great title to hold, right? These are all actors that generations coming behind us are looking up to and trying to emulate sometimes. And so to offset that, they need to see some people setting a different example for them. And it's God's people who are supposed to be setting that different example, that distinctiveness in our speech that God wants us to have. There is a movie that is, it's got some really funny parts in it called Talladega Nights, The Legend of Ricky Bobby. And Will Ferrell plays the character Ricky Bobby. And in one of the scenes there, this is a movie from a few years back now, but in one of the scenes, the family is sitting down to eat a meal. And you've got the mom and the dad, you've got the kids there, and you've got uh, Will Ferrell's character, Ricky Bobby, his father-in-law is there, the wife's dad is sitting at the table with them. And while they're sitting at the table, they begin to talk, and the kids launch into a tirade of cussing out their grandfather. And it's supposed to be funny. And the mom and the dad and the friend that's there all encourage the kids and tell them how proud they are that they're doing that. That's what is considered comedy in the culture our kids are growing up in. There's a total lack of respect and use of language in a disrespectful way toward people that deserve for us to be distinctively different in their lives. 
for Christ followers, we've got to do a better job in our speech. And then another area, the final one is attitude. Colossians 3.17 says this, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the attitude needs to be everything I do, everywhere I go, whatever I'm involved in, I need to do it like I'm doing it for God, for Jesus who died on the cross for me. I need to do it in a way that honors him. Sometimes it involves being totally different than the people around us and what they're doing. And that's never easy, but it's the call of Christ on his followers to be set apart in our attitude. Romans 12, nine says this, love must be sincere. Sincere means real, unadulterated, the real deal, the real thing, okay? The genuine article. Love must be sincere. Well, what is sincere love like? Here's what he says. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. We have to be willing in love to speak out against evil, but also to speak out and cling to and support what is good, to keep that balance and that distinctiveness in our lives. I love a quote I read this past week from J. Vernon McGee. Uh, he said this, I love it. Sometimes a majority opinion just means you've got a lot of fools in one place. <laughs> Isn't that true? Just because the majority is saying something or doing something, it certainly doesn't mean it's what God wants for the rest of us who identify with him. Don't be controlled by the majority. Be willing to be distinctively different. Now, sometimes the majority will get it right. That's great. But you do the right thing, not because it's the majority opinion, but because it's God's teaching and God's will for your life. First Corinthians six, verse 18, it says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have received from God? Listen to this, though, why that's so important. He says, you are not your own. He's talking to people who say they belong to Christ. They follow Christ. You are not your own, he says. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What's the motivation for our distinctiveness? The price Jesus paid for us to belong to him. He paid for that with the blood that he shed on the cross. My life verse is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I want to close with it. Here's what it says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He says, this is your true and proper worship. Worship God, worshiping God is so much more than assembling together for a, a time of singing and, and preaching and teaching. It's so much more than that. It's the presentation of your whole life. Everything you do in your body while you're here on this earth is to be given to God as an act of worship. So he goes on to say, all right, here's how you live it out. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't think like everybody else thinks. Be trained in your mind by the teachings of God. His wisdom is so much greater than man's wisdom. If today you are ready to 
to make a change and to make that decision to be distinctively set apart for God. We can help you take the steps that you need to take. Please message us, contact us. We'll be happy to follow up with you and lead you through those steps. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that today we've been challenged by Daniel and his example and, and, and the friends, the three friends that were with him there who were willing to, to stand up and be distinctive and different in a culture that was so foreign to what they believed in and thought you wanted for them. I thank you for their courage and their distinctiveness. And I pray that we could learn to be the your set apart chosen people in our culture today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And now let's take some time to remember and commune with Christ in remembering the price that he paid for us to be called to be his children.